You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm your host, Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to talk about franchising, one of our favorite topics. And we have a great franchise expert here with us, Scott Greenberg. He's a speaker and an author of The Wealthy Franchisee. So welcome, Scott. Explain a little bit of your background so that people get know an idea of what qualifies you to be an expert in the franchisee environment. Why should they listen to me is the real question you're asking. Who, <laughs> who are you? So uh, long before buying my first franchise business, I was a professional speaker. So it was a combination of motivational speaking and leadership training, and these groups would bring me in to uh, help them succeed at a higher level. But I realized a lot of people I, were talking, I was talking to had a lot more experience actually leading people than I did, and that always bothered me. So um, I've been doing it for a while, but decided, all right, it's time for me to get a second stream of income. One, so that, you know, my wife and I were starting a family. I didn't want to have to continue traveling quite as much. But number two, I wanted a laboratory, a place to try out all the concepts that I've been sharing on stage for years. And it's when I had that thought that my father showed me an airline magazine ad for a new concept called Edible Arrangements. Uh, and I was really impressed. So before I knew it, I was meeting with them. And then I thought, okay, this is it. So uh, that began a 10-year odyssey, still as a professional speaker, but I was also running the first of what would be two Edible Arrangements franchises. So the first one we uh, we built from the ground. The second one, a few years later, we acquired from someone who was struggling, and we turned that around and, and got that profitable pretty quickly. So I was doing that for 10 years, and then um, I started getting invitations from speakers, bureaus, and their clients to go to other franchise systems and speak to their franchisees at their conventions. So before I knew it, my speaking career shifted into – speaking to franchise businesses. And so probably 80% of my audiences are franchises. Well, before every presentation, I always do a lot of homework and I interview franchisees from that system, the struggling franchisees, the top ranked franchisees and many in between. And I spend time with the franchisor. So I've been exposed to a lot of brands, a lot of industries, a lot of franchisees and when you meet enough of them, you start to hear the same concerns. You start to see the same magic techniques of the top people. And that's what my life's work is on now, is really focusing on the difference between struggling franchisees and what I call wealthy franchisees. So uh, that's what I do. So what was it that attracted you to the franchising environment as opposed to, you know, ramping up your own business? What attracted me was having no idea what I could do. I didn't have uh, an idea for a business. I didn't have a new recipe. I didn't have a new concept. I knew I wanted something. And the first thing that got on my radar happened to be Edible Arrangements, which was a franchise. So what I liked about it was the, the product, the service was already there. The operations were in place. But from a, a speaker consultant standpoint, what I liked about franchising is it's more scientifically sound. You have all these people running the same business getting different results. So if I could identify the variables that we associated with those who are getting better results, well, then I can figure out not only how to grow my own business, but how to help other people. So I like that aspect of being able to compare people who are doing the same thing, getting different results, and understanding why. 
So franchise is a good place to study that. What would you say are some of the human elements of franchising? I like to focus on three, and that is the way the franchisee thinks, the way they lead, and the way they serve. So it all starts with their thoughts, their philosophy about the business, their ability to control their own temper, to keep a clear head and get back to what I call that point of clarity, which is not positivity. It's about getting rid of all feelings, all subjectivity as much as possible to keep a clear head so you can make good, sound, data-driven decisions. So it's all about mindset and philosophy. That's the first part is how they think. Then is how they lead. The understanding that it's not just about directing employees' work, but developing them into leaders, which will free up more time. It'll improve the experience that the team is having and that customers get. So it's really understanding how to lead people, how to have influence on their behavior and their thoughts and feelings. And then the third human element is how we serve. Wealthy franchisees understand that it's not about facilitating transactions. It's about creating emotionally satisfying experiences and building connections with people. That's what, you know, ultimately customers remember less what they got and more how they felt. So being deliberate about making sure they feel better after the experience is the key to making sure they remember you, talk about you, and come back. One of the lines that you had is really great and struck out to me. And I want to know what you mean by ego is the enemy of service. I love to say that. Ego is putting the focus on yourself. You use the business to prop yourself up, to make yourself look good, to use it as a way of expressing who you are and wanting the world to know how great you are, which is different from confidence. Confidence just means that you uh, believe in yourself and believe in what's possible for you. Ego is about saying, I'm better than you and wanting the whole world to know that. And the problem is, if you're using the business to serve yourself, if you're focusing on yourself, Well, then you're not focusing on the people who matter, which is your team and, of course, the customers. It's customer service, not owner service. That's what puts greens in our genes. That's what makes us money and and builds the business. So I found in interviewing all these wealthy franchisees, I'd say, what's your secret to success? None of them said how great I am, how talented I am. Many of them said, I have no idea. I guess it's the right place at the right time. Very humble. But a lot of them said, it's my teams. Now, of course, They didn't say it, but for me, I understood they're responsible for creating and maintaining those teams. I give them credit, but they tend to shy away from the praise. They want to put the focus on other people, and that's really where success happens. When you have an ego, that's not possible. So why did you decide to write a book, and what did you feel you had to say that hadn't already been said in this marketplace? So I had already been you know, speaking to franchise groups for a number of years, and people came up afterwards, you know, after my presentations, and says, hey, that's great. I want more. Do you have a book? So the market was already asking for it. Uh, it but in terms of what I thought I could contribute with the book, when I was a franchisee, this book really didn't exist. You could find books on franchising, but most of them were how-to books explaining what a franchise is and maybe how to vet a franchisor. Maybe they'd get into the operational elements of it, but they really didn't get into the part that matters, that distinguishes top franchisees, which is this human element and how those human elements directly impact how operations are executed. Now, then there's the other kind of book, which is all the books about soft skills, emotional intelligence, sort of the motivational things, which I think are very important. But there weren't any that were written by people who've run small businesses or who have been in a franchise who really get the operational pieces. 
And so what I've learned from doing this for a number of years is that we need more than ideas. We need to see how the ideas apply to us, our lives, our businesses. So I want to take uh, a number of concepts which have already been proven by scientists and social scientists and other people and then apply that to the franchise world. So helping franchisees understand it's not just about operations, it's about that human element. I really couldn't find any resources for myself that really focused on the franchise market. And so that's what inspired me to, to write it. So let's talk a little bit about the title. You know, you hear the wealthy franchisee and you automatically think money, then I'm going to be rich. But when you read the book, wealthy has a number of other definitions. So can you kind of just talk about how you chose this title and what it means to you? Sure. So clearly there's a hook there. Before people can you know, benefit from the book, they have to read the book. And before they read the book, they have to buy the book. And no one is out there, no franchisee is thinking, hmm, I need to find a book on how to be a happier person as a franchisee. They're not looking for that book. They're looking for, hey, how can I be successful? How can I make more money? And I stand behind the concepts in the book as a way of doing that. But I think there's more to it. So from very early on, chapter one, I define the term, what it means to be a wealthy franchisee. The first is the one most people are looking for, which is the financial aspect. We want to have more money in our pocket at dinner than we do at breakfast. I think there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we you know, sustain the business. How much money it takes to be wealthy is subjective based on how much you've invested, where you live, and what your expectations are. But the idea is that you feel good about your financial return on the investment. But you could have two franchisees both making $200,000 a year. If one of them does that working 20 hours a week and the other does it working 80 hours a week, they're not equals. So the second part of being a wealthy franchisee is being in control of your time. You should not have to be a slave to your business. I interviewed a lot of franchisees for this book who are really successful. Many of them have multiple locations, in some cases, scores of locations. But they all started with just one, and they all only have 24 hours in their day. And what I found about these people is, in addition to running all these businesses, they're home for dinner, and they travel. And they go to their daughter's volleyball game. They have lives. So to be a wealthy franchisee is to make good money, to be in control of your time. And then the third characteristic is to have quality of life. I've met franchisees who truly hate their business. It just makes them sick to their stomach just thinking about it. Life is too short for that. Your life should be better for having the business in it. So in order to be a wealthy franchisee, in my definition, to be aligned with all the people who I profile in the book... You need to be making good money, be in control of your time, and have quality of life. So let's talk a little bit about some of the stories that you shared in the book. You know, just talk a little bit about some of them um, that maybe, you know, that struck out to you for whatever reason. Well, you know, the first, I won't go into it now, but, you know, the, the first story that jumps to mind is my own because it was a wild, crazy, emotional roller coaster running a business. And I share that story in the book just to kind of give people a set firsthand account of, of what it's like. So, so just because that's what I personally experienced, that's what comes to mind. But some other stories that I thought were interesting, I interviewed Burke Jones, who's a multi-unit franchisee with the UPS store, massive brand, thousands of locations. Over the years, I think Burke has owned um, five different locations. Twice, he bought struggling locations and turned them around and individually made each one the number one store in gross sales in the entire system. And what's interesting is in one case, the geography of the store was very lackluster. No geographic or demographic advantages at all. 
he made it number one in the system. The second one, not only was it mediocre geography, it was two doors away from a FedEx store. His direct competition was right there. But in spite of the, those things, he turned it around. And so his story to me, it dispels the myth that great franchisees just have awesome locations. They actually have adequate locations, but they run them extraordinarily well. So his story shared that. Another story that I just loved, I had the opportunity to have breakfast and interview Peter Cancro, who's the CEO and founder of Jersey Mike's. He bought Mike's Subs, the Jersey Shore, when he was 17 years old, if you can imagine that. He'd been working there for a few years since he was 14. And his high school football coach, who really believed in him, was also a banker. And so he uh, financed it, arranged for Peter to, to get a loan. And that's what enabled him to buy it and then eventually expand it and become this incredible company that it is today. And knowing that he was given this opportunity by this football coach, Peter wants to pass that on. He's really big on making the world a better place and improving human lives and using the sub shops to do it. So he now has a new award where he takes uh, store managers who work for franchisees and, uh, he basically gives them a store. He finances it. He signs the lease. He sets them up to have a successful store just the way he was set up. But then he also makes sure that the franchisee who loses the manager gets a percentage of that manager's sales for you know, a certain period of time to be compensated for losing the manager. So his story is incredible. And the way he's you know, created this legacy is, is wonderful. The last one that comes to mind is Catherine Monson, who's the CEO of Fast Signs and the current um, – head of uh, of, of uh, IFA, the International Franchise Association. And she shared a story of having horrible conflict with a franchisee for a brand that she used to be in charge of. And uh, the guy was just verbally abusive and how she kind of went in and calmed him down and sort of met him eye to eye. And what she did to not only help him build a store, but more importantly, to improve the way he interacted with the corporate office. So that was another interesting story we came up with. So who is the audience for this book? And what do you hope readers take away after they read it? First would be people who own franchise businesses and maybe feel stuck and want to take it to the next level. It would also be people who aspire to get into franchising and want to know what it takes to be successful. I would also say franchisors who want to help their franchisees perform at a higher level. Um, but honestly, Barbara, probably 80% of the content in the book, and this is what a lot of readers are telling me now, probably 80% is uh, can appeal and be helpful for people who are in other businesses that aren't even franchise specific. So I think anybody who wants to understand how they can think, lead, and serve more effectively and do that to grow their businesses, those would all be people who would benefit from the book. Yeah. One of the things I noticed about the book was you use a lot of these C words like complacency, comparison, calm, clarity, critic, and confidence. You know, Was that by design or as you were putting it together you know, to use these words that you know, people will respond to? Yes, there are trends in writing, both in books and in articles that editors kind of push you to use, whether it's an acronym or whether it's the five steps for this or the 12 techniques for that. And so using language and, and letters to make things more memorable is a common technique. I'm a little resistant to it, but you know, editors push for that. Well, when I started listing those concepts, I noticed that more than a few started with a C. So I thought, huh. Is there a way I could just go ahead and, you know, come up with a word for all of them that starts with a C without sacrificing the content? And I was pretty e easily able to do that. So I thought, all right, it'll make the editors happy. So it's a little bit of a gimmick, but all the concepts are there. 
So what are the three factors for franchise success? First would be our circumstances. Things like the economy, the competition, minimum wage laws, government regulation, right now would be the pandemic, things that are out of our control. Now, a lot of people like to blame their circumstances because it makes them feel better about themselves. They can say, hey, I'm doing everything I can. I'm doing my best. But in these conditions, it's impossible to make money. They love to place blame. And it's not that these factors aren't real. Certainly, they are, especially in the restaurant industry. But they don't tell the whole story because often you'll find other people in the same circumstances getting better results. So the second factor is our operations, all that stuff that keeps us busy. So it's our policies and our procedures and our sales and our marketing. It's our recipes. All those things that franchisees pay franchisors to teach them or all those things that restaurant owners do that just um, appeals to that notion of we have to work hard and have to work smart. Clearly, operations are key. In the franchise industry, it's what defines the brand. But you'll also find in the franchise industry a lot of people embracing the same tactics but not getting the same results. And that is because of this third factor, which is what we talked about, which is the human factor the way we think, lead, and serve. And what I've learned is the most successful people in all industries, uh, they have the operational elements down. That's not the prerequisite for success. I'm sorry, that's not the secret for success. It's the prerequisite. What they also have is a really great mindset, and collectively, they build great cultures. And when that gets infused into operations, that's when business really starts cooking. So what are some common mistakes, like mind traps, that you see franchisees making And how can they get that mental grip? First is emotional decision-making. We allow our thoughts and feelings and emotions, our our humanity to influence the way we see things. If we had computers or robots running a business without emotion, they'd provide terrible customer service because they would lack empathy, but they would be able to make sound decisions. So if they had to make a purchase, there'd just be an algorithm that looks at value compared to price, then calculate what is the best result. But we human beings have fears and over-enthusiasm and we catastrophize. We have all these different emotions and jealousy and these things that influence our decisions. And so what I tell franchisees is before making any decision, you have to get back to your point of clarity to make sure that you're coming from a place where you're objective and not giving into emotion. I see a lot of people who are catastrophizing who they'll take you know, a bit of information or you know, a bad feeling and they'll blow it out of proportion and start to make horrible predictions about what might happen. I see franchisees become complacent. They start to disengage from the business, maybe because they get a little too comfortable. They take their success for granted. In some cases, they're just kind of given up. They stop trying to learn. They stop trying to improve. And the problem is there's disruptions in the marketplace, new competition, new expectations, the economy changes. And so if you don't continue to infuse new energy into the business, and if you don't continue to make yourself a better leader, you're going to slip backwards. Uh, we mentioned ego. That's a huge uh, self-imposed problem for a lot of business owners. Um, and then I think a lot of people that give in to the inner critic, that voice inside your head that's always criticizing you, they listen to that voice, they believe it, it impacts their decisions and makes it harder to grow the business. So there are a lot of self-imposed mind traps that hold us back, but unlike our circumstances, these are things that we completely control. But it just means being willing to stop and reflect 
and clear your head. So obviously, reading your book would be a great way to learn how to start to change, particularly, you know, as you said, if you've kind of grown complacent or fallen into some kind of bad habits. But what are, are there a couple of quick tips to kind of get you out of that rut? Yes. Each of us have our own mind traps, and we also have our own ways of overcoming them. And I, I discussed this with a number of these wealthy franchisees and understand they have the same mind traps. They are not without emotion. They're just good at managing them. So, and they're very deliberate about it. So many of them meditate. They literally just stop, close their eyes, focus on their breathing. I'm not one of them. That doesn't work for me. I'm too busy concentrating on how I can't concentrate. Uh, so that doesn't work for me. What does work for me is getting up and taking a walk going outside. I've come up with some of my best ideas just taking the dog around the block. There's something about getting away from the issue, from my computer, from my desk, and getting out in the world among the houses and the buildings and the trees. It activates a different part of the brain that promotes creativity and problem solving. And so whatever you can do to calm yourself down, talk to a therapist, talk to a friend, write in a journal, all these things help us get back to our point of clarity. So you just have to stop and reflect what what helps you? And those are a few different ideas. I think that we also need to reflect on what is motivating us and what's you know triggering us. And if you're focused on yourself and how you look to other people, that's a red flag. Just pull yourself out of the equation altogether and just focus on what's going to help my employees do better work and grow? What's going to make my customers feel good? Those are the questions that matter, not how can you make yourself feel better or how can you make yourself look better? Yeah, you know, one of the key things that we hear from restaurants all the time is the team and creating a culture of success so that the team members feel successful. So how do you go about building a team and what? how do you find these good team members? It's, it, it's such an important question and most people have no idea. Most people have no formal leadership training. They manage the way they were managed. And the problem is their previous bosses may not have been good role models. And in the franchise industry, franchisors are reluctant to get into people management because they don't want to be accused of being joint employers and having all the legal obligations that come with that. So most franchise owners have an inadequate amount of management experience and training. So a few things. So first of all, understand that you are not just filling positions. You are building a culture. Whether you realize it or not, it might be a toxic culture, but every employee you bring is an ingredient to a recipe. And I'll, as you know, as restaurateurs, all it takes is one ingredient to ruin the food. So you want to be very deliberate about who you hire. So one thing I would advocate is get away from if you like the person. Don't concentrate on what your gut tells you. We can't rely on our gut. And whether or not we like the person is irrelevant. We're not looking for a friend. We're looking for someone who meets certain characteristics associated with a job. So if you think of all the jobs you have to fill, it might be a server, it might be a cook, it might be a delivery driver. What are the most important traits for those jobs, the most important characteristics? Then during the interview, you're not just asking the person, tell me about yourself and, and deciding if you like the person. You're asking questions geared towards shedding light on, do they demonstrate responsibility? Do they demonstrate empathy? Do they have a clean driving record? Focus your questions on those characteristics, and that'll help you focus on what matters. And what you might find is that the most qualified candidate might be someone who you don't personally like. You wouldn't want to go out and have a beer with them, but they might be a great person to work at your restaurant. So focus less on – also, if you're you know training a manager to hire, you can't train your manager on your gut. 
but you can get your manager to focus on the same traits that you're focusing on. So identify the most important traits and then focus on those things. Then once you hire people, don't just train them for the job, prepare them for the culture. That means being very aware of what are the values of your team? What is the purpose of your team? What is the way you interact? How do you solve problems? Is, is gossip acceptable or is that not part of how, you know who you want to be? Identify those things and spend time promoting them. Spend time focusing on the relationships among your team members, not just on the work. And that small investment of time at the front end will save you time in the back end because they'll be more, they're more loyal. They'll collaborate and communicate more effectively. It'll be a more positive work environment. You'll have better employee retention. And that'll directly translate to better customer service. So put time into the relationships among your team and not just on the work. One of the things we learned in 2020 was the importance of technology. So what role do you think technology plays in franchise success? Five years ago, I would have said it gives you an edge. Today, I would say it just allows you to compete. People now expect technology and we really need it to run an operation, even a simple operation. When I saw that edible arrangements just made fruit baskets and delivered them, I thought, gosh, how easy is that? Well, it turns out it was not easy. And what really has made Edible Arrangements so successful, in addition to a cool product line, is unbelievable technology. So from the very beginning, uh, the founder um, built a sub-company that created our point of sale system, very sophisticated. And it made our lives so much easier in terms of being able to track orders and figure out how much fruit we have to order all in one place. Nowadays, in the restaurant industry, people expect to be able to have you know mobile ordering and to be able to, to track deliveries. And there's so many ways in which technology is now a part of our lives. So certainly, it's got to be part of running a restaurant. You simply have no choice if you want to compete. It's what people are thinking. It's what they expect. And it's just necessary to be part of the game. How do you think the pandemic has changed entrepreneurship and interest in franchising? It depends who you ask. I've seen actually a, a lot of franchisors are seeing an uptick. A lot of people are in transition. They have you know, lost their jobs and they're looking for something new. Well, suddenly there's a franchise. So it's, it's a good time to make those changes. There is money available to be borrowed. And because a lot of franchise businesses have shut down, those businesses are now available or they're being sold cheap. Landlords are offering leases for much cheaper than they once did. So there's a lot of opportunities. And there are a lot of franchise concepts that are actually doing very well. Those that focus on deliveries, a lot of pizza chains are doing well. Edible Arrangements is doing well. Sit-down restaurants, some have managed to be to, you know, to pivot to be able to offer an outdoor experience if the local municipality allows it. Others have been very Good about, you know, delivery and takeout. You know, it, it, it depends. The restaurant industry has been hit very hard. But I will say that people are dying to go out to eat. The customer base is, you know, as soon as any municipality says, all right, we're going to let restaurants open in whatever form, people are just dying to have that experience. And so I think if we can, you know, get into restaurants, somehow get into business and just keep the bills paid, there's a gold mine waiting for us in the end because the demand is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think this week I've seen more articles and things about pent up demand that kind of give you hope for, uh, you know, for people wanting to go out and experience either restaurants, retail, you know, in the future when they're when they're more comfortable. Yeah, I think uh, the next deadly sin that we can all anticipate is gluttony. 
<laughs> we're just <laughs> we are all dying out there just to get out and eat like oh, fresh sushi. I want that so bad on a plate instead of styrofoam. So what did you learn while writing the book? Uh, so many things, a, a number of things. But I guess I really had the opportunity in this book to interact with a lot of great, successful people. And I had a hypothesis at the beginning that these human elements are what matter. That was my personal experience. That's what I learned from, you know, over the years of working with so many other businesses. But really going deeper and asking those questions among successful people, it really confirmed for me that um, that human element matters. Successful people are humble. That's just part of who they are. They're also very courageous. They take risks. They believe themselves or they overcome that self-doubt that holds them back. They also really focus on the success of their teams and the experience of the customers. They're very other people-centric and as opposed to being self-centered. And so that just makes a huge difference. And so moving forward, I'm trying to catch myself worrying too much about myself. I'm trying to put more value into the world to just give away ideas and just be as helpful as I can. I believe there's a boomerang effect for the value that we put out into the world. So I, I think that um, it really comes down to what do you have to offer other people just coming from a kind, loving, generous place. I think that is the best way to serve yourself. One of the topics that you discuss is a tough one, exit strategies. So why do you feel having an exit strategy is necessary? First, we're all going to exit one way or the other. And I think we want to exit on our terms. And so when the time comes for you to leave the business, you want to do it in a way that is smooth and that is most financially beneficial. And so you have to plan for that by having a business that looks good, that's operating, and certainly on paper looks good. And so you want to make sure that your profit and loss statement is caught up based off of real data, that you've paid down debt, that expenses are under control, and that you're showing a good profit. But it also means putting out a lot of goodwill out there, especially in the franchise world. Um, some of the most common people to buy existing you know, franchise businesses are other franchisees. So you want to make sure that you have a lot of goodwill among other franchisees. And you kind of think about who are those people who might want to take over. In a franchise system, people aren't just buying the business. They're buying a piece of the brand. So a franchisee's responsibility isn't just to build their own store, but to really serve the brand by embracing its standards and being a, a good ambassador for it. But I think another reason why we need to plan our exit strategy is that in the process of doing that, it'll improve our current operations. Last time my wife and I were preparing to sell a house, the realtor came and did a walkthrough and suggested all these aesthetic changes to make the house look better on the market. So we did them and then decided, you know what, we actually don't want to sell the house. But by preparing for the sale, suddenly the paint was fresh and the landscaping looked better and our house was better by preparing for that exit. We can make our restaurants, we can make our businesses better now by preparing for a future exit. In the process of doing that, we're going to have better and more lucrative businesses in the present. So we've kind of talked around this, but what's your outlook for restaurants and franchising in 2021 and beyond? I think the brands that have already invested in building strong cultures have an advantage. I think that it is a, a bit of a long game. There is light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know how long the tunnel is. And so right now, it is about survival. But I think that those restaurants, especially those that were successful before, have every reason to believe they'll be successful when we come out from the other side of the tunnel. People 
want to eat, they want to eat out, they want good food, quick food, cheap food, whatever it is that you have to offer, the demand is going to be there. So if you've had a business that's been successful in the past, there's a lot of reason to believe it's going to be successful in the future. And so we need to do whatever we have to do to hang in there. However, I do think that people are going to remember those who are providing great experiences now. So we need to up our customer experience. We need to improve the cultures of our brand to give us strength and promote collaboration and focus on the human side. But I'm very hopeful for the restaurant industry. Last question. What did you mean by this line? When you buy a franchise, you're getting more than a business. You're acquiring a lifestyle. For sure. And I would apply that to restaurant owners as well. You don't just run the business. You feel the business. You don't get to punch out at the end of the day and walk home and think about something else. You're up at night, lying in bed, thinking about it. You're getting phone calls and text messages at all hours. When a customer complains, uh, unlike a computer, you feel that. And so it's really, it's a way of living when you own a franchise, when you own a business. And so it's important when making decisions to understand that you're making life decisions. You can always make more money, but you can't get back your time. You're investing and spending this precious resource, your time on this business. This is your life. And so you want to make sure you're doing it in a way that really values your life and really values your time because it really is a way of living. It's not just a way of making money. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 